Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of our Bike Radar Shorts Friday podcast. We're going to bring you the juiciest gossip from the world of cycling this week. Now, I am joined remotely by my good friend and colleague, Simon Bromley, who is on the other side of Bristol as we speak. We're recording from today, my living room. And today we're going to talk about uh, our favourite bikes from Paris-Roubaix of all time. With the ongoing coronavirus pandemic forcing the cancellation of this year's edition of Paris-Roubaix and with it our traditional comprehensive tech coverage, we're revisiting some of our favourite stories from the Bike Radar Archive. And with that, we've been looking at some of the coolest bikes we have ever featured on site. So Simon and I, we've sat down and we've picked some of our favourite bikes we've ever had on site. So why don't you kick things off with your choice? Right, so yeah, I chose uh, actually quite a recent one um, because I'm a young man, relatively, I suppose. <laughs> but um, yeah, I chose Greg Van Avermaet's bike from, I think it was 2017 when he won. And so that, the funny, you know, I, I think so many of the, you know, when you talk Harry Roubaix bikes, so many of them have kind of crazy modifications or, you know, new ideas and things like that. And what I really liked about um, Van Avermaet's bike was actually that how kind of sort of simple it was. And really, he didn't really have any kind of crazy stuff on it. It was just a, a BMC Grand Fondo, you know, so carbon frame with standard carbon wheels, 30 mil tires, classic bend handlebars, long, long stem, not much else. Yeah, it's a great looking bike, uh, really beautiful color with it. And like you say, just like, it's almost at that tail end as well of 
classic shaped triple triangle frames being used in the pro peloton obviously everything now drops these days and it is it's just that kind of i don't know you could almost say the pinnacle of that sort of design of frame yeah absolutely and obviously you know rim brake as well and i, I think since Ooh. then everything's been everything's been one on discs and probably it will be one on discs for the foreseeable future um yeah, it's got like that incredible go-fast red paint job. And like you say, the drop seat stays design that's kind of inspired every bike on the market now. Uh, it's also got the Durace 9000 group set with a Durace 9000 SRM, you know. It, Which is it's definitely just, the best-looking group set Shimano has made yeah, in recent years. it's so good. It's so good. And obviously, you know, the 44-tooth inner chain ring and things like that. And, and so, it's, you know, it's got those 30mm Vittoria tan wall tubulars it's just a really really lovely bike and it doesn't have anything kind of stupid on it or anything and, it, and it's got you know one one wrap of really thin handlebar tape <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a little inline brake lever and uh, you know I, I think like i like i wrote in the article that was the fastest paris roubaix ever and they it, they rode that i think 45 kilometers per hour average for 257 <laughs> kilometers so <laughs> That's you know, it's just insane. Um, just in, absolutely incredible. And, and I think, yeah, I think the only thing that could have improved that bike is a bit more mud. Yeah, we haven't had a muddy edition of the race since, well, ever pretty much now. <laughs> no, and I, and I think, you know, I think if I was a pro and I had to race it, then I'm sure like it wouldn't be so fun. But like as a spectator, you know, those, those, when we think of Paris-Roubaix, it does kind of recall those black and white images of Sean Kelly going across the kind of, you know, Forest of Arenberg cobbles in the mud. And it's just, it, you know, ridiculous. But, um, mm. but it's ridiculous anyway, isn't it? I mean, you've ridden it, haven't you, Jack? Yeah, I did, I did actually. Years ago, I did the Sportive. I did it on a Lauf True Grit, which is a gravel bike with a leaf sprung front uh, fork, basically. And it was dreamy. I have to say, I don't know why they're not just using gravel bikes in Paris-Roubaix because it makes it a lot easier. So <laughs> what, size tires? what size tires were oh, you running then? I had 40 mil tires on that one. So pretty, pretty chunky. Um, but honestly, like, you know, you could fly over those cobbles. And for those of you that have not seen the cobbles, I cannot stress, they're not like, you know, beautifully kept cobbles you would see in Old Town Edinburgh. They are like boulders that have been stacked precariously together they are so rough and more than anything the gaps between uh the worst sectors as in sorry the the gaps between the cobbles on the worst sectors are massive you could so easily lose a 23 or 25 mil tire down there um so yeah doing it on a fat tired gravel bike was definitely the the nicest way to do it although i did i did see you wrote a nice line in your piece on this bike where you said that you know the bike is is quite classic and one shouldn't try to soften the cobbles too much because Ruby is glorious because it is hard. And I, I kind of get it. I do know yeah. exactly what you mean. I think even if you told the pros that riding 40 mil tires on Ruby was faster, how many of them would do it? Yeah, I mean, so when we're doing the research for this, I read a line that sort of said um, the Cannondale team tried 30 mil tyres for one race, but the riders didn't like it because they said it felt too cushy. And so they all switched back to 28 the following year. And I, and it's, I think it's a bit like how for ages everyone pumped their tyres up to 120 PSI because it felt it felt hard, it felt fast. And I imagine mm. those Cannondale riders probably went slower the next year, but oh, it, was what, it, yeah. it was what they wanted. And it... And, 
you know, as as I sort of said doing the research for this, it's amazing the lengths that bike manufacturers and teams have gone to just to avoid riding big tires. Yeah, you know, all the dead ends, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment, but with kind of suspension tech at Roubaix, Bianchi obviously being the best example, you know, you've got a full suspension bike with 19 mil tubs. It's, it's <laughs> madness. It's absolutely yeah. madness. It's really yeah. funny as well. One of my uh, selections I was looking through, and I kind of like all the old bikes that would come fit with uh, cantilever brakes or even cross bikes that they would use at the race. And it's so funny because on this TCX that was used by, was actually, sorry, it was actually a TCR that had been modified, used by Hincapie in 2008. You know, he had cantilever brakes front and rear, uh, and on the rear, he used it to accommodate the special extra wide 25 millimeter tubs <laughs> on the rear of the bike. It's just bonkers. You would just, never yeah, dream of doing 25s now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible. And, and I think, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, rim, you know, before disc brakes, rim brakes were a bit of a limiting factor, but you could have just run cantilever brakes. There wasn't really any reason to run mm. such narrow tyres other than tradition. And, and I think, you know, even today, we, most of the, you know, e- even last year, most guys only ran, you know, maximum 30 mil tyres, which, you know, I just can't, you know, we, in, in, the, in the age where, you know, we can get carbon wheels that are optimised for, you know, tyres up to kind of 35 mil or something, it just seems to me incredible. I've, I can't think of any other reason other than tradition, but... You know what do I know? I've not, I've, you know, I've not raced it. No one's going to yeah. ask me to race it, and you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe for so. an upcoming feature, we'll put you right in the middle of it. Yeah, it's funny that yeah. you know, maybe as gravel racing moves into this more kind of formal sphere within kind of UCI regulations, perhaps the influence of that will cross over into the road racing side. Maybe we will see people riding, you know, 32, 35, 40 mil tires in the future on, on the Roubaix. And there's, you know. There's obviously the aero disadvantage as well as weight to wider tires, but I mean, you you can so easily lose that race on one sector, one sector of cobbled uh, cobbled pavement, and yeah, it's just madness to think what people have done. So onto my choice, I kind of got into road riding at the tail end of the era when shallow box section alloy rims were still being used at the race. And the reason people tended to go for these wheels is they offered arguably increased strength and more dubiously more comfort than carbon wheels of the day. And, you know, triple laced classic alloy box section wheels were a really common sight in the cobbled classics until quite recently. And I have to say that nostalgia for these early days of my cycling career definitely play a part here. But I think there is nothing as cool as a totally uncompromising ultralight classic triple triangle carbon frame set fit with a set of triple laced ambrosio nemesis or mavic reflex wheels i i think that is the the, the peak of cool for uh, road racing tech and if those rims are laced to you know silver dura 7900 era hubs my god i need to sit down if the rims are ceramic and they've got vittoria pave tires with green sidewalls that is really it's too much for me almost and uh, I I just love the way it looks. It's such a cool contrast with the kind of typically, but not so much compared to now, chunky tubes with these really shallows. I just think it looks so, so cool and really defines that kind of era for me when I got into to riding. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, like you said, this was kind of the, the era before kind of 
aerodynamics in carbon frames really became a thing, didn't it? So everything was focused on being sort of, you know, A, super light and B, super stiff. And then, Mm. like you said, you combine that with, you know, a 36-spoke shallow box section rim. And there's just, there's that really kind of weird mix of the new carbon technology and Mm -hmm. those old school wheels that you'd have seen, you know, copy riding on in the 50s or something like that. And so, yeah, there's something very much of that era. We know there's the early sort of Dura-Ace DI2 drivetrains as well and and everything just... So cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, and, and like you say, you know, clearance, bikes with clearance for like 25, 25 or 23 mil tires. It's, it's just ludicrous. It, but, but something, you know, like the, the paint jobs as well from that era, like one of my favorites is the Rabobank paint job. You know, I think it's mm. like that white frame with the orange and blue highlights is just so cool. You know, it'll go really well with bike radar kit. So if, if Giant have any of those <laughs> lying around... <laughs> I, yeah. I actually think as well of that bike, you know, if I was going to make a concession and say that shallow carbon wheels could be part of this, I think there's a really good one that's uh, the 2009 edition of that bike. It just looks incredible. And I also think that riding a white bike at Roubaix is a big flex. That's a big mood. And I'm really here for it. I'm really here to uh, to back that one up. I think is the kind of like defining picture of it for me. I think maybe something like the 2012 uh, CR1, Scott CR1 that was used. Um, that That is just so cool. You know, we've got Sven Tuft, I think his name was. We've got the one as the example in there. And, you know, long, low cockpit, simple classic lines, those amazing looking wheels. I love it. And actually a fun story, uh, long before we started our career at Bike Radar, uh, our colleague, Matthew Loveridge, formerly Matthew Allen, who has also been on this podcast before. We used to work in a charity in Edinburgh called The Bike Station, and it was like donated bikes that would come in and kit and whatever. Uh, And I very fondly remember an Ambrosio Nemesis rim coming in. It was knackered uh, that I kept aside for Matthew, who later pried the uh, little decal logo badge thing off of the rim because it's just cool. It's gold. And they use them in Roubaix, so it's instantly a cool trinket you want to have in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I said, you know, I guess it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because before then as well, you know, in the 90s, we saw loads of, you know, weird bikes, didn't we? Because, you know, the 2000s were kind of an era of sort of, as you say, standard carbon road bikes. And they just sort of, you know, maybe made a few modifications or slapped on a pair of classics wheels. But then in the 90s, like you said earlier, we had full suspension Bianchis. uh, But it was a bit of a dead end. Although, you know, some of the best riders of the day rode them. Like, I think someone, you know, won a race with with the front suspension forks i believe i can't quite can't remember who it was it was it it was uh gilbert uh won oh no sorry gilbert duclos lasalle that's the one he won in 1993 with the rock shocks ruby fork well sorry ruby fork sorry which was um a kind of a name a play on the name for the judy which was their cross-country mountain bike fork at the time and he was the first to win with that fork a very basic thing, all things considered. It was essentially just some elastomers slapped into some telescopic tubes. But, you know, it did also present a, a, you know, a, a advantage at the time over those rougher sections on the cobbles. And it was met with a lot of scepticism to begin with, but he won. And it wasn't until it was 1994 when it was, uh, oh God, I can never pronounce his name, Johan, what should we go for, Simon? Johan. Museo. 
Monsieur, that will do that. You can pronounce it. But he wrote a full <laughs> suspension prototype Bianchi, which was designed by Matt Harvey, um, which looked very promising as a design. And it was said to be very optimized, very light, you know, a really clever design. There's a really good piece on bikeradar.com, one of the world's leading multidiscipline <laughs> cycling websites, about uh, the design of that bike. And he said that though the design was good on paper, it was actually quite compromised towards the end because there was a lot of pressure to get this bike into the race. But it was something to do with the clearance of the chain rings meant that to get around the problem, they essentially crimped the chainstay last minute in a vice with a rag around it. And that's exactly where the bike cracked, something like 75 to go uh, kilometres to go in the race. And that, I mean, that's a, imagine the attention today even if that bike was ridden in the race, you know, we would go absolutely nuts for it on bike radar. So imagine all the attention that was on it there. So to have such a public and catastrophic failure just was, that was it, game over for the suspension tech. And, you know, you really didn't see it again until sort of, you could argue, the new specialised Roubaix, uh, Roubaix with its future shock, although that's a very, very different thing altogether. So suspension tech was definitely the, the key thing in the 90s that defined Roubaix. But whether we'll see that kind of wholesale, uh, like, development in suspension tech, I'm I'm doubtful we'd see it again. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we see it's, you know, we see it's it's kind of creeping back in, isn't it? So Pinarello had obviously the one with the suspension at the bottom of the bottom of the head oh, yeah. tube and, yeah. and on the rear stays and, and obviously you know specialized has its um future shock system which matthew loveridge gets on very well with you know i'm not convinced by the amount of space to stack it adds visually but you know i know you're a big fan of that and, and so i think it's kind of creeping mm-hmm. back in but like you said i think bike brands that you know they kind of like they want to do it because obviously like you said it generates column inches and you know it maybe it's a, offers a performance advantage but obviously you know road road bikers are quite skeptical the skeptical and conservative i think would be the, the way to describe it you know yeah you try to tell these people that 28 mil tires are faster let alone running suspension so absolutely yeah it's We'll wait and see. Yeah, actually, very briefly on that, Pinarello, I haven't had a chance to use it, but Oliver Woodman, one of our guys on the site, he did, um, maybe like two years ago. And he's really clever in the, the the lockout for that suspension system. And it's a more traditional, like hydraulically damped system. It's actually semi-automatic. And he said that the response of it, when you began to hit quite a rough section of... of uh, road or on cobbles was actually remarkable like it was so so reactive and it, it it's definitely not suspension but it was that kind of smoothing quality was was very very noticeable so yeah it's yeah it's, maybe i'll eat my words maybe i'll be wrong yeah uh, and is, you know it's possible that it's the next big thing on road bikes i mean we've kind of discussed this before haven't we and you know things that mm-hmm. start in these kind of really tough races you know endurance road bikes really kind of you know almost st- started in in paris roubaix but you know trek had their demane which was kind of made for cancellara to win roubaix and then you know that became you know became a whole kind of new kind of bike a new category of, of road bike and so you know it's, it's very possible that 10 years down the line we'll all be riding you know di2 bikes with suspension and electronically controlled widgets all over them and things like that and you know maybe we'll all be going faster and more comfortable for it well i hope so because it'll keep me in a job being able to write about <laughs> this stuff for years to come so. <laughs> 
I think it says a lot of our choices and perhaps who we are, Simon, as as uh, naughty millennials that we haven't we haven't harked too far back into the past. And I'm sure the uh, the older generation of our listeners will be screaming into their headphones that we've only focused on the 2000s and 90s. But even we have to admit that the classic bikes of the day, the likes of Eddie Merckx's 1973 Rosa, Ed Rosa, sorry, is about about as cool as it gets from that era. I mean, least of all because it was Merckx that rode it, obviously a true legend of the sport. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, we was think I was thinking about this before, and like you say, you know, my kind of opinions on these are definitely coloured by the races that I, you know, have personally watched. But I think before, before the 90s, I'm not sure if there was such a thing as a category of Paris-Roubaix bikes. You know, they seemed to just ride their kind of normal bikes, mm-hmm. didn't they? So... But they are certainly, you know, some incredibly beautiful bikes. You know, the the the, the Moses bike, the uh, Bonotto from A Sunday in Hell, the, the mechanics working on it in the opening scene. It's just, you know... It's such it's, a good shot. It's iconic. It's such a cool film. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just such a cool film. And, you know, and then there's obviously the the, the Gitan that Hino rode in the World Champions jersey. It's, it's got that beautiful kind of navy paint job. And, you know, the, all of these bikes have classic bend handlebars you know the 36 spoke wheels you know the polished silver components the straight top tubes you know they're just they're just stunning to look at aren't they but it's hard to kind of pick out any modifications that were specifically made for Paris-Roubaix I'm not sure you know I'm not sure like if you you know roads in general were worse quality back then so I'm not sure Mm -hmm. there were many modifications made but maybe that's wrong maybe I don't know Poor roads, gravel before it was gravel, yes. <laughs> before it was marketed. <laughs> but yeah, it's true, it is true. And obviously we're lacking the kind of tech coverage that would have come then. I mean, we could go read through uh, vintage copies of Frenemies Cycling Weekly, but we wouldn't <laughs> be allowed to give you that information. <laughs> anyway, this is just a short selection of some of our favourite bikes. We've got more comprehensive coverage on bikeradar.com. Like I say, obviously the race has been cancelled this weekend, but we're kind of going through the archives, finding some cool old stuff, bringing you whatever we can in these very, very strange times. And on that note, actually, we're also launching a new newsletter, a cross-brand newsletter at Immediate Media, and that's our stay-at-home newsletter. And we're going to bring you the best content from across all sites at Immediate. So if you want to get your daily dose of parenting tips, gardening tips, cooking tips, and what to watch on TV, definitely check that out because it's a really cool project. As always, do not forget to subscribe to wherever you get this delightful podcast from and we will do our best to bring you as much coverage as possible from various locations across the Southwest (laughs) 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 as best as we can in these very odd times. But yes, thank you for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. (laughs) 